Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Shame on you! You have blood on your hands! Call for a ceasefire! Call for a ceasefire! Call for a ceasefire! You have blood on your hands! You have to die! You have blood on your hands! Well, good afternoon, friends. That was the scene last night in Vancouver. The prime minister was off today to San Francisco for the Apex Summit, uh, was in B.C. for a press conference, spent the night in Vancouver, was dining at a Vancouver restaurant last night when the place was crashed by the protesters you just heard. Vancouver police say they had 100 officers deployed to deal with the situation. A 27-year-old man was arrested for punching an officer in the face and gouging the officer's eyes near this restaurant in Vancouver's Chinatown where the prime minister was dining. He eventually had to leave the restaurant, was ushered out by security as the protesters weren't just outside the restaurant making themselves heard. They stormed into the restaurant to try to confront the prime minister. As you could hear from their angry voices, uh, they are definitely not on the side of Israel, definitely not on the side of the government uh, here in Canada, who up until this point has been mostly supportive of Israel. I say mostly, and we'll get to that in a couple of minutes. But here's the thing. The prime minister isn't going to be able to both sides this issue. You got a weird situation here where you've got uh, these activists who are mad at him. You've also got Israel's prime minister and Israel's opposition leader who are upset with Justin Trudeau. And that seems to be the corner he's backed himself into. But make no mistake, what we saw last night was not just a protest by individuals who were concerned about the situation, who were merely just sympathetic to, to the Palestinians. I think it's fair to say that a lot of the folks there were not just sympathetic to the Palestinians. These are individuals who are sympathetic to or even supportive of Hamas. There's a group known as Samadun, or the Samadun Palestinian Prisoners Network which has organized dozens of rallies in support of the Al-Aqsa storm, which is what Hamas called the October 7th attack. Those uh, rallies have taken place across Europe and North America. One of the women who was there last night is a woman named Charlotte Cates. Charlotte Cates is married to Khaled Barakat, who's uh, allegedly a leader of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the PFLP, which is a banned terrorist organization in Canada. Charlotte Cates is leader of the Samadun Palestinian Prisoners Network, which, by the way, is listed as a terrorist organization in Israel. Back in 2015, Cates and Barakat had gone to Germany to promote this organization. Germany revoked their residence permits and banned them from entering the country. Uh, but they definitely have a uh, safe haven here in Canada. 
So these are the kinds of individuals that were involved in this protest last night, trying to confront the prime minister and chase him out of this restaurant. Now, earlier in the day, the prime minister, uh, speaking at an announcement alongside B.C.'s premier, had a comment to make about the situation in Gaza and the conflict between Israel and Hamas. And the prime minister suggesting that the onus is now falling on Israel when it comes to protecting civilians and in particular protecting hospitals in Gaza. The human tragedy that is unfolding in Gaza is heart-wrenching, especially the suffering we see in and around the Al-Shifa hospital. I have been clear that the price of justice cannot be the continued suffering of all Palestinian civilians. Even wars have rules. All innocent life is equal in worth, Israeli and Palestinian. I urge the government of Israel to exercise maximum restraint. As the world is watching on TV, on social media, we're hearing the testimonies of doctors, family members, survivors, kids who've lost their parents. The world is witnessing this, the killing of women and children, of babies. This has to stop. So it feels like a bit of a shift there from the prime minister criticizing Israel more so than I think he's been willing to up until this point. Now, that drew a reaction from Israel's prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, on Twitter, a message where he tags Justin Trudeau and says it is not Israel that is deliberately targeting civilians, but Hamas, the beheaded, burned and massacred civilians in the worst horrors perpetrated on Jews since the Holocaust. While Israel is doing everything to keep civilians out of harm's way, Hamas is doing everything to keep them in harm's way. Israel provides civilians in Gaza humanitarian corridors and safe zones. Hamas prevents them from leaving. But it wasn't just Israel's prime minister. Israel's opposition leader, Yair Lapid. Prime Minister Trudeau, Israel is defending itself in difficult conditions against a brutal terrorist organization while trying to rescue babies, children, women and men who are being held hostage by Hamas. Responsibility for this terrible situation rests with Hamas. So it feels like there's a a real break here in relations between Canada and Israel. And as mentioned, it feels like Canada's position is shifting somewhat here. So joining us to talk about the prime minister's comments, the reaction in Israel, and what we make of these developments, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Richard Marceau is a former member of parliament. He's a lawyer, a human rights activist, an author, vice president of external affairs and general counsel for the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, CIJA.ca is their website. Richard, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Rob. Uh, so this is interesting to, to see this kind of reaction, not just from Israel's prime minister, but Israel's opposition leader as well. First of all, I mean, how surprised were you to see that or what was your reaction? Well, we were completely blindsided. Uh, it was, it seems to be a, a change of position from the government. We hope it's not, but certainly the tone um, and the the. I don't know the implied threats the world is watching, uh, whereas the the efforts that Israel puts into making sure that as a few civilians, innocent civilians, are are, are caught in the crossfire uh, were, were surprising, and that 
I think, explains the fact that uh, not only, and you mentioned it, the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, responded in the middle of the night there. So he got up and tweeted this because nothing like this could have been written on Twitter without his approval because he he um, he called out Prime Minister Trudeau by name. So this type of thing does not happen at the staff level. And two, uh, the leader of the opposition in the Israeli parliament, uh, Yair Lapid, also called out Prime Minister Trudeau. So uh, there is a, a vast consensus in, in Israel that, that what Prime Minister Trudeau said was very, very unfortunate. You, you mentioned it seems like maybe there's a shift in Canada's policy here. I, I think early on the Prime Minister was was quite supportive uh, of Israel, Israel's right to, to defend itself, referring to Hamas as a terrorist organization, which very much seems to line up with where the Canadian public is at. But what's your sense then of, of how or, or whether that position is, is changing or evolving? Well, I, I, first of all, I think nobody can be insensitive to the terrible images that, that we see coming out of Gaza. Uh, of course, people, innocent people are, are being hurt. What what the prime minister seems to have, I guess, forgotten uh, is that uh, there's one side that's trying to move civilians away, that's calling civilians to move out of uh, combat zones that that's building uh, humanitarian corridors to let civilians go out, and you have the other side, in this case Hamas, who's trying to keep people there because, in their sick and twisted uh, way, the more Palestinian civilians die, the more pressure there is on Israel to stop its offensive. And the more, and if Israel stops the, it's offensive, Hamas stays in power. So they are cynically and sickly using their own population to push the international community to stop Israel from uh, pushing back on what, what Hamas did on October 7. It's similar to what we saw, uh, you know, the week of uh, October 17th when Hamas accused Israel of, of bombing a hospital, which turned out not to be true, that in fact it was a Palestinian Islamic Jihad rocket that struck near the hospital. But the prime minister was criticized, Prime Minister Trudeau was criticized because his initial reaction seemed to accept that that claim from Hamas, seemed to blame Israel uh, for for what had occurred at that hospital. Uh, we see something similar here, don't we, where maybe the prime minister is, uh, especially with what the U.S. released yesterday about what Hamas is up to, that the prime minister seems very quick to, to blame Israel. So uh, we are, the day that the prime minister uh, of Canada, Mr. Trudeau, said that, uh, the uh, we saw images on international media showing that indeed Hamas has been using uh, hospitals as as bases for their activities. That was confirmed by U.S. intelligence and by the U.S. State Department yesterday. So we know that Hamas is using something that should be absolutely free of military activity because in times of war, hospitals should not be used for military action. When a side uses a hospital for military action, that makes the hospital a legal and lawful target of, uh, of of military action. Um, so to see the prime minister kind of, uh, I don't know, forget this and, and almost uh, take for granted that the numbers that, that Hamas is putting out in terms of, of civilian death is, is, is distressing and, and I think is wrong. 
Right. I mean, it's one thing for the prime ministers to suggest that, that Israel be cautious or show restraint. I, I think that's that's what Israel is doing. But the fact that he didn't mention anything about how Hamas is, is using these hospitals, I don't know if he's not being in, informed about all of this or just didn't choose to mention it. That, that's something that needs to be condemned, isn't it? Well, that certainly is, is is troubling, and what it does is that it enables Hamas to continue to use Palestinian civilian population because there's somebody in Hamas, and, and don't you know, make no mistake, they're they're very savvy. They know what people are saying on the international level, and they're probably looking and say, "Oh, we convinced the Prime Minister of Canada that that uh, we're the good guys here, or at least that that Israel is not." Uh, making uh, the utmost efforts to to protect civilians, whereas Israel is doing exactly this. So I think it's up to the prime minister to to correct what he said and 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 clearly come out and say yes, Hamas is using civilians as human shields. This has to stop. Um, and the dead babies that Prime Minister Trudeau mentioned are on Hamas's hands. It was interesting to, to to see the prime minister lay out this position on the same day where we saw, you know, there was a poll out showing that Canadians are, are overwhelmingly supportive of Israel's right to defend itself. On a day we saw many Canadians uh, travel to Washington, D.C. to be part of this, this massive uh, solidarity rally in support of Israel, uh, you know, to see the prime minister now maybe go in a different direction it's it's hard to understand but uh you know what what are the risks of of damaging that relationship right now with israel well uh, the prime minister knows that hamas is bad like he said it. so so you know that he said it from the beginning and you said that uh, as well robin your intervention uh, your, in your introduction the prime minister of canada knows that hamas is bad that hamas is a terrorist organization um, he, in his remarks yesterday, he seemed to kind of have forgotten that they would be using their own civilians uh, and to put them in the in the crossfire to to score political points uh, and PR points against Israel. Um, the what we saw yesterday in in D.C. was uh, almost 300,000 people. My understanding was it was the biggest demonstration in the history of the U.S., uh, certainly on the Mall, and it showed the depth of support that Israel has in the U.S., and many, many Canadians uh, went, including a, a few liberal members of parliament, and that is that is important. It has to be uh, noted. Um, but the bottom line is this conflict will not stop until Hamas is crushed because, how, as they said themselves, they want a permanent state of war between uh, themselves and Israel. It, they were quoted as saying so in the New York Times last week. And uh, uh, the number two of their political bureau said that given a choice, Hamas will do other October 7th attacks again and again until Israel disappears. So their game plan is clear and the only way to stop the bloodshed to make sure that this does not happen again is to make sure that Hamas does not stay in power in Gaza. Absolutely. Well, let's see, see if the Prime Minister gets the, the message. Uh, in the meantime, we'll continue following all of this very closely. Richard, appreciate your input uh, on all of this. Thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Thank you for having me. Welcome back. I think it's safe to say that the Canadian Pacific Railway was the biggest and most consequential infrastructure project that this country uh, ever embarked on. Frankly, there probably wouldn't be a country were it not for the construction of the Canadian Pacific Railway. So it was audacious.
not just as a concept for having a train run from point A to point B, but audacious in the idea uh, of connecting all of these British colonies to create an entity, a single entity uh, from one coast to the other. And the railway allowed that to happen. So it's of huge historical significance. And it's the subject of an interesting new book, looking at how it all came about, why the, the people involved in these ideas and making these decisions. It's called Dominion, the Railway and the Rise of Canada. It's out now. Joining us on the line here this afternoon is the author uh, of said book. Uh, Stephen Bond joins us uh, on the line here this afternoon. Stephen, so great to have you with us. Welcome back to the program. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks. Like I say, it's it's a hugely important story. It uh, had uh, enormous consequences for the country as we know it today. But what about it appealed to you as, as a writer, as a storyteller? Uh, well, I mean, it, it's just the, the whole romantic ideal of the CPR. Um, it's one of the great iconic stories in Canadian history. It can't, it can't be avoided, like you alluded to in your introduction. We wouldn't really have a country of Canada without it. I mean, certainly at the time, these disparate, you know, British colonies were likely to be consumed by the ravenous appetite of the American Empire to the south. I mean, uh, John A. Macdonald, controversial figure today, but the mm-hmm. one thing you can say about him is that the, the CPR was his, uh, his big ego dream to create this... Uh, you know, continental nation that was a mir- to, in his mind to be a mirror of the United States. And he knew you couldn't have a country that did have its own communication network. Um, at the time, when he convinced British Columbia to join with the Canadas, British Columbia, you know, was hemmed in by Alaska to the north, which had just been purchased, by, you know, by the Americans. Um, it was hemmed in by Washington and Oregon to the south. And several mountain ranges of impenetrability to the east. It was, it was an isolated little blob of land. All its communication was with San Francisco. All of its trade and commerce was with San Francisco. They even used American postage stamps. Right. So, yeah, I mean, to convince them to join the country of Canada, which was just a collection in the east, I mean, they needed something big, and, and McDonald's persuaded them, no, we're going to build you this railway. Now, of course, he had no idea how he was going to do that. He just announced that he was going to do it and figured it would work its way out. You know, Americans already had railways. Right. And so when the delegates from B.C. wanted to go to Ottawa to negotiate this deal or discuss the possibility, but they actually took a steamship south to San Francisco, rode the American railways, and then came back up into Canada and the east. Otherwise, it would have taken them perhaps four to five months of hard travel to get there. So that's the world we're dealing with right at that, at that time period. I mean, it was, uh, it's, it's an incredible story of how that was even conceived in the first place. It was a triumph of politics, a triumph of civil engineering, a triumph of, of uh, creative finance. And, you know, the tens of thousands of people who worked on that were, you know, very proud of their contributions in this uh, nation-defining civil engineering project. But of course, there's, you know, 50 years has, has gone by since um, Pierre Burton wrote his story on them, more than 50 years. And, mm-hmm. You know, society has evolved since then, of course, and new information has come to light as well. And it's just, uh, to me as an author, having just finished my book on the Hudson's Bay Company, um, you know, I wrapped it up around the time that this book begins and the story just needed to continue. And with this new information and these new perspectives, that was the natural next story for me to write. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, nowadays, right, obviously, there's there's a lovely drive, uh, you know, th- one can make through B.C. into Alberta and continuing east, and one can hop on a plane from, you know, Victoria to Ottawa. But at this time, this world you're, you're exploring here, it was a, a world apart, right? The idea of British Columbia, uh, way over here, as you mentioned, more connected to San Francisco than anything else, they would have any connection to upper and lower Canada that you couldn't even get to without going through the United States. It was a very unusual kind of concept as much as we would take it for granted today. Yeah, it's an entirely manufactured concept. I mean, it, you know, it's hard to even think of that era. I mean, a lot of times people imagine, oh, history... In the the past was the same as it is now, but just older. Right. Um, you know, it's it's actually not the case. I mean, genetically, we're all the same as those people that lived hundreds of years ago. But um, the technology was completely different. Um, the transportation was different. The world knowledge was different. More than fifty percent of the people who lived um, were completely illiterate. Um, knowledge of the world and world events was non-existent. Um, you know, it was a completely different world just by virtue of um, by virtue of the technology and the population density that existed at that time. So, yeah, it's it's a it creates for a, a time period that allows for allowed for a great deal of um, adventure um, and tragedy and hardship as well as yeah. triumphs that are not really possible within our society in the same way right now so it's a great it makes for a great story but of course you always have to i think the the contribution that i brought bring to it right now is to um you know interject a little bit of the darker side of the story so that we don't have a you know pierre burton when he wrote about it half a century ago was much more of a cheering nationalist rah rah here we go isn't this great kind Mm -hmm. of story and i just want to broaden the perspective a little bit and show some of the the other aspects of the story which are no less interesting but are a little bit more challenging to deal with yeah you know and i, I use the word audacious uh, at, at the uh, outset here but there, there's almost a level of arrogance that comes into play the idea that first of all that that aid this can be done given all the enormous challenges of building on this terrain but just the idea that everyone along the way would want it would welcome it and i mean especially that includes obviously the indigenous communities uh, along the way so what about that that I, I, I don't know, is arrogance the right word, maybe, to, I, to talk about it? I think it, arrogance is exactly the right word about it. I mean, um, this idea that, oh, yeah, we're just going to go and uh, pound a railway throughout right. that land. Um, yeah, look, we've, we've purchased it from the Hudson's Bay Company. We gave them some money. I mean, in much sense, did the Hudson's Bay Company even really owned the land. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, some British lords got given some money, which was actually technically from the Canadian government, although it was bankrupted by the British government. So, you know, some money shuffled hands amongst a small group of in- insiders, and all of a sudden this land was supposedly part of this new country. Now, at the time, they kind of knew that that, that wasn't really the way it was going. I mean, that's why they sent negotiators out to negotiate all the numbered treaties, you know, from mm-hmm. from Western Ontario all the way out to across the prairies. And and they, that was all happening just as the railway was being conceived. It was being um, surveyed, and the construction was just beginning. I mean, the, the whole purpose of that was to to create an additional layer of legality um, into the system to allow for the railway to, to progress through those lands. And, of course, 
there was a great deal of hardship also going on on the prairies at that time. Um, we have, you know, railways in general, especially the ones in the U.S., allowed for great numbers of migrants to come west from those population centers in the east. And, and those people brought infectious diseases along with them. And they also brought uh, people out onto the prairies who were hunting the buffalo. And in the U.S. especially, they were hunting hundreds of thousands of these things, millions of them. They were using them uh, for machine belts in the to fuel the Industrial Revolution in the East. And there was a, a policy of deliberate slaughter of those animals in the United States. Now, of course, buffaloes don't know anything about international borders. And in any case, there was no marking on these border anyway. Mm-hmm. So hunting a buffalo, which was the primary food source of tens of thousands of people in Western Canada, resulted in widespread famine, which was exacerbated by all the disease. Yeah. We created a horrible situation, and the railways pounding through the land at that exact period of time. Um, and so there's a lot of eyewitnesses to what was going on there. And, you know, of course, we have the two different rail rebellions. We have Cypress Hills Massacre. We have the Chilcotin War. There's a lot of um, upheaval and violence in this time period, which, um, you know, is, it's it's dramatic uh, dramatic events in history that ha- were very impactful. All this is part of the railways push across the land and the changing of the land. I mean, the railway, it presaged um, huge numbers of of immigrant uh, settlers that came onto the land afterwards, too. Mm -hmm. So it's a very turbulent and very, very dynamic time period. You mentioned the, you know, the vision and the determination of, of John A. MacDonald, who definitely has his, his stamp on this project in a big way, uh, you know, for better and for worse. I mean, if if he's not around, I mean, he was such a consequential figure in so many ways, um, but does this happen without him? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a very good question. I mean, the, the what-ifism of history is, a, you know, it's a great game to play. Yeah. I, uh, my take on it... I mean, people could argue that until they're blue in the face, I suppose, but I don't really see that Canada would exist without that. I mean, it was kind of, he was a driving force behind a, a lot of the initiative to want to have this country. And he knew that you needed to have a communication network, and therefore he was the one who used up <clears throat> all of his political capital over a period of decades almost to, <clears throat> excuse me, push mm-hmm. this railway through. He did almost anything. He enabled all the sort of crazy, semi-corrupt financial deals that were pushed through the House of Commons that gave the railway extra extra land concessions and extra government subsidies. And, um, you know, he he, he, uh, pursued that through multiple elections. And, of course, he was in power, and then he lost the elections to Alexander Mackenzie's liberals, who who continued with the signing of the treaties and continued with the... um, the CPR in a very lackadaisical, uh, government-organized, corrupt way. Um, and then, of course, you know, he won the election again and continued to push the CPR. He devoted his entire political career towards ensuring that this was done, and it, it was completed just barely a few years before he actually died. Um, I, don't see, I don't see how it could have been done by anyone other than him with that that forceful leadership and um, that that political vision that he had for that. Now, of course, he, he overlooked some great 
problems that were associated with that. I mean, the environmental dis- destruction that happened along the way with the dynamite explosions. Um, there was the exploitation of the Chinese laborers, particularly in British Columbia. I mean, all the laborers worked under conditions, I should say, that, that would be completely illegal today, living in oh, tents yeah. in the minus 30 and eating the dried food and the scurvy and diseases in those camps and the horrible conditions. But the, the Chinese workers in British Columbia had it particularly hard um, now, not only, I mean, they left a hard situation in China, too. Um, there, was, there was famines and epidemics and civil war in China, and, and uh, labor brokers were, were selling Chinese uh, uh, peasants, essentially, and shipping them around the world where they were building infrastructure for a great number of countries. And Of course, like, you know, I think I purchased 17,000 of those ended up in Canada. Um, they were paid less. They lived under horrible conditions, and... They, at least 600 of them died on one stretch of the Fraser Canyons in dynamite explosions and tunnel collapses and um, a horrible situation. I mean, completely illegal today. Um, and yet, you know, there was a lot of discrimination against those workers after the railway was done. There was right. not an interest in having them remain in the in the country and they lacked voting rights. Um, you know, and a lot of that, some of the new information on that that I was able to incorporate into this story is because the, a journal, Duke Sang Wong's journal, was discovered in someone's attic. And he was one of the only, if not the only, literate Chinese worker who was on the CPR. Wow. Um, most were literate peasants, yeah, and he, and he wasn't. He was from a disgraced, you know, higher, uh, wealthier, more aristocratic family. And he had circumstances forced him to sign on and he kept this journal of all the years that he worked there and he's very insightful um, very observant fellow with uh, great descriptions and led an amazing and interesting life and you know i was able to incorporate that story and shed a whole new life on the work camps and the conditions that these people were working under as they built this railway it's quite fortunate i mean uh, you know to have these people as like a just a additional windows into the, the dynamism of the past. And, yeah, there's I, I, you know, a few other interesting people that I was able to put into the story, too, that that was always my great, my great interest in writing this book. It's not just to tell the same story over again. I wanted to cast the net wider right. and include a, a whole bunch of different new people. You know, I was able to bring in Jerry Potts, you know, the enigmatic uh, Pikani Blackfoot Métis warrior who became the great longtime guide of Northwest Mounted Police. You know, the Great March of the Northwest Mounted Police is also part of this story, too, which is mm-hmm. incredible. Yeah, there's Miston Wiflar Gibbs, a black American business leader who led 600 black pioneers to Victoria from California. He became himself an influential member of the Confederation League, arguing for British Columbia, to, oddly enough, to join Canada and not the United States, even though he had right. come from the United States. You know, it's a bit of irony there, and it's interesting. To, he's part of the story, too. Um, there's also Catherine O'Hare Schubert, you know, a young Irish woman who came across during the Irish potato famine, which was, you know, in 1858, a little bit earlier than the events of, of the creation of the railway. Um, but she joined the Overlanders on their great 1862 trek across the prairies into British Columbia. A huge adventure, and along the route that would later become the railway, um, you know, my objective was to really bring the world alive and show the different stories and how these people lived and how they viewed the world. How did they eat? What, what was the economy? How did they feed themselves? How did, right. they, how did they live, you know? It's so 
so the t- whole time period is just such a turbulent and fascinating time period. And, yeah. and you know, and you have the metaphor of this gigantic rail of steel being pounded across the country at that same time. And um, yeah. There you go. Now, fascinating is the word for it, absolutely. The book is called Dominion, The Railway, and the Rise of Canada. Stephen, congrats on the book, and thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. It's been my pleasure, Rob. Thanks. Hey, welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Much more still to get to here on a Wednesday afternoon. Rob Breckenridge with you here on QR Calgary. 403-974-8255 is our number. We'll get back to some more of your phone calls in a bit. You've been hearing a lot lately about the idea of a four-day work week. And it seems to be gaining some traction. But what is the, the data? What does the evidence tell us about what that looks like in practice? I mean, it's, it's easy enough to understand that workers would prefer it. The idea of working four days versus five? Sure, okay, that's got some obvious appeal. But what does that mean then for the company? What does that mean for profits? What does that mean for productivity? All of those questions. With some interesting new research out of York University that takes a look at at some of these big questions and and finds a pretty strong case for a four-day work week. It's called the four-day work week and the future of work in Canada. Uh, joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, one of the authors of this research, uh, Carlo Finelli, Associate Professor of Work and Labor Studies at York University. Carlo, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Happy to be here. Uh, so in terms of the data you're drawing from, and there's there's a lot here, right? I mean, we're talking about 30 companies, uh, over 3,000 workers. So where's all this information coming from, first of all? Exactly. So I think you set it up quite nicely, in fact. I mean, the big issue and challenge we encountered here in Canada is that there was a lack of data, and nearly all of our respondents and our research participants said so. So what we set out to do was interview the leadership teams of 30 firms, which collectively employ around 3,500 workers. Uh, they're quite evenly spit, split between the private and public sector, um, and they work in a, in, a, in a range of sectors. We have the goods-producing sector, like business and manufacturing. We have the municipal sector, technology, not-for-profit sectors. So it's quite a diverse group we interviewed and spoke with. Uh, and by the way, and to clarify, because there's a couple of different models that this looks at, when we talk about a four-day work week, are we talking about compressing 40 hours from five days into four, or would a four-day work week mean fewer hours work? So in our, uh, in our study, they were evenly split between the two. So in one version, the shortened work week, it's essentially getting uh, 100% of the work done in 80% of the time while still receiving 100% of the pay. So essentially um, removing one day of the week, usually it's a Friday or a Monday, and cutting your traditional 40-hour work week to 32 hours or some, you know, some range therein. Uh, and the other version is a compressed work week where instead of working 40 hours over five days, it's usually uh, 10 hours over four days. Okay, but no drop in pay then in, in either model? Uh, both, okay. Exactly, yeah. In both of the, um, of the versions uh, we explored in this study, there was no reduction in pay. Now, in terms of, of what workers thought about this, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty overwhelming. Uh, you know, 95 96% report happier and healthier workplaces. Like, that's, that's a pretty huge number. 
Yeah, I mean, we were quite surprised in a sense of how much the uh, Canadian data reflected what was happening internationally. And we know what's been happening internationally because these studies obviously have historical precedents, but they have much more recent precedents. For instance, in, uh, from 2015 to 2019, Iceland uh, ran an experiment with 2,500 uh, workers. It was so successful, it got generalized across 80% of the country. And there were other studies in, in Japan and in the U.K., uh, and and in, in this study, uh, we were taken aback by how much uh, the, the specificity of Canada across the provinces, because uh, our data looked at companies which span five provinces from east to west, and uh, they were quite consistent, whether working in a shortened or compressed work week, whether in the private or public sector, or unionized and un- or non-unionized. We saw productivity either stay the same or go up. We saw that most companies uh, expected to stick with this over the over the certainly over in this, into the future, uh, and in a nutshell, it's because uh, a happier, healthier workforce leads to a more uh, productive one. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, you know, it's it's important to me to be happy and healthy, but I think you know my employer also has a vested interest in that. I mean, when it comes to you know, creativity, when it comes to you know even just having those those things that take away from productivity, burnout, stress, fatigue. If we've got less of all of that, that that can lead to higher productivity, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, we're all familiar with the Friday slowdown that tends to occur, occur especially you know when the long weekend might be coming up. Um, we're also familiar with the uh, dreaded Sundays and thinking about Monday going back to work. And work also has a, a tendency to fill up the time necessary in order to get it done. Uh, and so what we saw here was that, you know, irrespective of the, the workplace we were looking at, uh, workers were, were certainly had less job fatigue. Uh, and quite extraordinary to us, uh, many of the employers we spoke with uh, spoke of the incredible uh, changes to recruitment and retention. So not only only were they able to keep employers that were excelling in the workplace, they were also they also had a, a much stronger uh, candidates that were applying for those jobs. Yeah, and I mean that that might change, I guess, if everybody was doing it. But right now, it's a big advantage for the companies that are, and you know, in certain sectors, it, it's there's a, a lot of competition for top tier talent. That this is a big advantage then for companies. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one one um, chief executive officer of a technology company quit, put it quite plainly to me, and he said, uh, "Listen, Carlo, I, we, as a company, we can't compete with some of the largest global companies, but we can offer something they can't, which is work-life balance." Mm-hmm. What about the transition of going from from a five-day to a four-day work week? Are, are there some some bumps in the road when it comes to making those changes? So in about half our study participants, a little less than half actually, uh, they rolled it out in stages. Uh, You know, our largest workforce was over 800. Uh, The average workforce was around 100, 150 uh, workers or so. And uh, for for about 40% of them, they rolled it out across stages, but others thought that they would roll it out across the entire workforce. Uh, This was done in different ways. Uh, In the municipal sector, for instance, uh, this often meant getting council's approval before making those changes. Uh, but in other companies, uh, this just meant bringing employee representatives to the table, discussing it with uh, management and supervisory personnel, and having discussion of what this could look like so that any challenges can be anticipated. So what do you see as the future of this this model? Uh, d- does it feel like there's some momentum here? Is this Is this becoming more common? Well, it certainly seems to me to be increasingly becoming more common. I mean, uh, common, I mean, the... The COVID-19 pandemic really did change the world of work. Not only do we have, you know, remote and, and hybrid work, mm-hmm. I think it led many workers to reconsider uh, the relationship between uh, work and life. And 
you know, trying to get some balance in, as far as how their lives are organized. I mean, this part of this broader shift, whether it's a shortened or compressed work week, will necessarily entail wider changes to society. For example, one of the challenges we didn't expect in compressed work weeks, so those working 40 hours over 40 uh, over four days, they said while they certainly wouldn't go back to a, a five-day work week, they did find it somewhat challenging, especially in the goods-producing sector, when they were working in the cold and darkness of the winter months, for instance, if they're in the building trades or road maintenance or fixing broken water mains when it's below right. 20 and four feet of snow, right? So all these unexpected challenges that they encountered, or for instance, you know, much of our, our society is built around the traditional nine-to-five workday. So what do you do with childcare if you're working till 6 p.m. or starting at 7 p.m.? So I think this will lead to wider questions, but it certainly does seem to me that a lot of workplaces are thinking seriously about how to re, uh, recruit and retain their talent and, wor- and make uh, work a little bit more enjoyable and productive in doing so. Right. And like you say, it's maybe not for every profession or every workforce, but as this continues to grow, what, what else is there to learn or what else is there you know, from your perspective as a researcher to, to study about this? I mean, the big, the big thing we got from all our respondents was that there was really a lack of data in the Canadian context. We can certainly look at studies about what's happening internationally, but given the uniqueness of Canada with, you know, uh, 10 different provincial employment standards legislation systems and complicated by federal labor legislation as well that often intersects with what's happening provincially, um, Canada's a unique place, and like you said, I don't think this will necessarily be generalized across the labor market as a whole, but there are plenty of workplaces that can benefit from it. And in doing so... I think there will be uh, ripple effects across other industries that will benefit. For instance, a lot of respondents spoke of, as as much as in some instances childcare might be a challenge when working a compressed work week, in a shortened work week, for instance, this meant that they were able to take on childcare responsibilities. Or if they had elder care, they were able to take their parents to doctor's appointments. So a lot of things tended to line up in a much better way, and I think this could have ripple effects across our society as a whole. Very interesting. We'll see where it all goes from here. Professor Finelli, thanks so much for making some time for us this afternoon. Appreciate the insight. Thank you. All the best. Uh, that is Carla Finelli, Associate Professor of Work and Labor Studies at York University, co-author of this new research, uh, looking at this data g- gathered from 30 different companies, about 3,500 total workers. Uh, they were kind of evenly split between those two models. Both involved a four-day work week. One was Four days, 32 hours. The other was 40 hours compressed into four instead of five. In both models, there was no pay reduction. Uh, so, so companies weren't saving money by having employees on a four-day work week. They were paying them the same. But were they still getting the same? So what's interesting is that based on this research, 90% uh, said that productivity had either increased or stayed the same within their workplace. 86% said there was an improvement in retention and recruitment among employees. So it is interesting, if you create a situation where workers uh, are happier and healthier, you know, that can pay off in terms of, of greater levels of productivity. Uh, like I just mentioned, it's maybe not a fit for every kind of workforce or every employee necessarily, uh, but it's interesting to see this starting to catch on. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.